Hello, Calvary. Can everybody hear me? All right, great. Well, let's get started. Good morning and welcome to Sunday School. Very excited to hear about, or at least read about from the Bullens, the ordination service that's happening uh, later at Calvary today. Uh, that makes me think of something that I've been meditating on a little bit from Ephesians 4, talking about why does God give gifted men to the church, specifically talking about pastors and teachers, but I think it applies to both elders and deacons, but why does God give them? They are gifts, but why? It's so that everyone in the church might use their gifts to build up the body. They are specifically given for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. So praise God that we have the elders and deacons that we do. May God raise up more. And I, and I pray that you would be appreciating and benefiting from uh, these men and their wives, just as God, just as God always designed for them to do. All right, well, today we're talking about the hearts of man. We broached this topic in our last few lessons when we talked about Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel. And in these, in, in Genesis 3 and in Genesis 4, we see flagrant unbelief and disobedience in both the first couple and in Cain. But the question is, are all people like them? Are all people basically evil at heart, or are they basically good? Or are there some of each? With the right training, can we change what is in someone's heart for good or for evil? Are people blank slates just waiting for input? Are there bad apples? Are there good eggs? To use a couple of different phrases. And when I speak about the heart, understand what I mean. Heart is just a figurative term to describe one's inner person. It's the seat of desire, thought, and will, your causal core, your inner man. And the Bible uses the term heart synonymously with the term mind or soul or even self. So what is in man's heart? If you ask most people in our culture whether they are good or evil, they will probably quickly declare themselves to be pretty good. They won't say they're perfect, but they're still good. And if you bring up the example of, say, Cain, they would say, oh, he was a terrible person. I would never do that. I'm not like Cain at all. Now, not only do people think of themselves as basically good, but they have great hope for their fellow man. If we can just educate him properly, they say, show him that his racial prejudices are groundless, show him how good it feels to treat others kindly, show him how bad other people feel when we make fun of them or mistreat them, etc. then he'll realize he wants to be a good person. Deep down, he's good, and he wants to be good. Or if we can just get people to communicate better, understand each other, then they'll see they're not that different, they'll stop being in conflict, they'll stop fighting, they'll stop going to war, we'll have world peace. People just need to communicate better, they need to learn how to communicate. Or we can just get people to self-actualize, get people to realize what it is that they really want and then help them achieve their dreams. Then they'll stop acting out in these detrimental ways. A self-actualized person will be a happy, peaceful, and productive person. Have you heard these kind of ideas? 
This is what so frequently circulates in our society. But what really is man? And what is in man's heart? Let's see what the Bible has to say in response to this, this and these questions. The Bible is the only totally trustworthy authority and actually has a lot to say about the heart of man. Now, to investigate our question this morning, we're not going to be studying one passage in depth, as we often do in our Sunday school lessons, but we're going to be looking at a number of different passages to come up with an overall view of what the Bible has to say on this topic. Here is our plan of attack for today's lesson. First, going to look at, oh, we'll first identify what the Bible really says is in man's heart. We'll secondly, deal with objections to what the Bible has to say about the heart. And then third, we'll ask and answer some application questions when it comes to how do we talk to others about what is in their heart. Well, let's pray as we begin. Lord God, this is a very important truth. This is a profound question to answer. What is in man's heart? What are we deep down? God, I pray that you'd help me to be able to explain what your word says clearly and accurately, helpfully. And God, I pray that you would work in the hearts of those who listen today, that they might be sanctified. Lord, even that they might be saved if they don't know you. God, I pray that we would appreciate not only what you've done for us if we are saved, but Lord, we would appreciate just how far away from you we are because of what happened at the fall. Even in our condition, God, I pray that you can help us to explain this truth well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So what is in man's heart? Have Adam and Eve brought a curse on all mankind in this area? A great place to go to help answer this question is the book of Romans. We're going to go to a number of passages today, but we're starting in Romans chapter 5. So please take your Bibles and turn there. Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. Remember that the book of Romans is written as an introduction to Paul's ministry and his gospel message. And it's given to Roman Christians who never met Paul personally. Before our section here in chapter 5, Paul has just explained that Christ died to save us while we were helpless and enemies of God and has accomplished full reconciliation for those who belong to him. And that has a lot to do with what he says next in verses 12 to 21. So follow along with me as I read that now. Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him, who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if the transgression of the but if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. And on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. 
So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right, now that passage is filled with profound details and implications, but we're going to focus on details of the text that have to do with our question, the heart of man. Notice a few things about this critical text from Romans with me. Notice in verse 12, who is the one man mentioned? We have Adam. He is the first one who sinned, and he is the one man. He's referred to directly as Adam in verse 14. As a result of Adam's sin, this passage delineates three effects that spread to the rest of mankind. And notice what those three effects are. There's first physical death. Verses 12 and 14 say, death spread to all men, and death reigned. Because of the one man, Adam, death spread to all men. But then there's not just physical death, but spiritual death. Because notice, verse 19 says, the many were made sinners. They have a new condition of being a sinner, which we can also call spiritual death. And then the third effect, we see this in verses 16 and 18, that is condemnation, judgment. We see the phrases judgment resulting in condemnation or transgression that resulted in condemnation. Now, there are these three effects, physical death, spiritual death, condemnation. But which people experienced them? Or maybe asked more simply, which people did not experience these effects of Adam's sin? And the answer is nobody. Apart from Christ, of course. But notice verse 12. It says, death spread to all men because all sinned. And verse 18, it says, through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. So this applies to everyone. Now notice to whom Adam is contrasted in this passage, and that's Jesus Christ. If being an Adam resulted in such negative effects, well, what are the effects of being in Christ? Well, notice there are three, at least. There is justification, verses 16 to 19. Justification is being declared righteous, being legally declared righteous before God. Righteousness in verses 17 and 21. This is a new condition in contrast to being a sinner. They are made righteous. And then life, in verse 17, it says they will reign in life. And the end of our passage talks about eternal life. So you can see there's actually a pretty direct contrast between the effects of being in Adam and the effects of being in Christ. In Christ, you are justified, legally declared righteous. You have a new condition as righteous, and you gain life. And notice that these effects are also universal for those who are found in Christ, with the word all and many being used again. So then, the teaching of Romans 5 is pretty straightforward when it comes to man's heart. In Adam, all people 
are sinful people who will die and be condemned by God. Bring that up in the slide here. There we go. All people are sinful people who will die and be condemned by God. And why? Why are they like this? Notice is because all became sinners through Adam's disobedience. Through Adam's sin, man was changed. Now, this sobering truth is echoed throughout Scripture. And you can see these other scriptures listed on the slide. Romans 3.23, famous verse. What does it say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is essentially the same as what Romans 5 says. All people, again, a universal declaration, are sinful sin-doers who are condemned by God. They do not reach God's righteous and glorious standard. They fall short. But of course, it's not just Paul and Romans, in Romans 5, Romans 3. A few, just a few chapters after the account of Cain and Abel. Listen to what God says in Genesis 6-5. Genesis 6-5, it tells, or Genesis says, Then the Lord, that is Yahweh, saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, understand when God makes this observation. This is right before the flood. And God really emphasizes man's evil in this verse. It's a threefold emphasis. God says man's wickedness was great on the earth. It was high magnitude. And every intent of the thoughts was evil. It was a comprehensive sinfulness. And it was going on continually. It was unceasing. Now, this doesn't leave room for much exception, does it? Every thought of man was all evil all the time. The Bible says this was the state of mankind after Adam's sin. Not a very hopeful picture, is it? But maybe man was different after the flood. Well, if you remember the chronology of Genesis, we know that soon after the flood, there's the rebellion at the Tower of Babel. And pridefully, tries to make a name for himself with a tower and a city. So that argues against the idea that man's heart had become better. But also consider what God says to Noah after the flood, when Noah offers sacrifice to God. And this is in Genesis 8.21. Genesis 8.21, we read, Yahweh smelled the soothing aroma. And Yahweh said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. So isn't it the same thing in Genesis 8.21? Even after the flood, God identifies the state of man's heart as harboring constant evil. Except here, God also says that this evil intent is even evident from that person's youth. Even little kids harbor and show forth continual evil. I think some of you parents can say amen to that. Now, King David in Psalm 51 goes even further. In this Psalm of Confession, Psalm 51, it's a Psalm of Confession and Repentance after David had committed adultery and murder. Remember that with Bathsheba. In this Psalm of Confession and Repentance, David records this insight in Psalm 51.5. David says, 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, don't misunderstand this statement. David is not saying that his mother conceived him in an act of sin, that she committed adultery or something like that. No, that's not the idea. And even if that were true, that wouldn't have anything to do with David's own sin. Remember, this psalm is about David's own sin. Nor is David saying that sexual intercourse is sinful or shameful. No, God created sex before the fall as part of the fulfillment of his initial command, be fruitful and multiply, part of God's blessing, part of the companionship of marriage. The physical union of marriage is a good thing, and it is to be honored and enjoyed, just as Hebrew says. David is instead saying something else. David is telling us in this psalm and in this verse when he became a sinner. And when was that? As soon as he began to exist, when he was conceived, that's when he became a sinner. There's no time in David's existence when he was not a sinner. Right at his conception, he says, I was in sin. This, by the way, is a great verse to support the truth that life begins at conception. Because if David was a sinner as soon as he was conceived, then David must have had also life and personhood. A mere clump of cells cannot be a sinner, but a person can't. And David says he was, even at his conception. Back to the main point. David confesses he was a sinner. King David. He was a sinner before he, as soon as he began to exist. And if this was true of David, who was said to be a man after God's own heart, then what does that mean for the rest of us, for all mankind, for you and me? And finally, to round out our little survey right now, there's what Jeremiah 17, 9 says. This is another famous verse. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick, who can understand it? I notice that Jeremiah refers to the heart, not so-and-so's heart or sinner's hearts, but the heart, referring to what? The heart of man, the heart of all people, the inner being of us all. He says it's deceitful and desperately sick. In fact, Jeremiah says that the inner person of man is so deceitful and so perverted that no one can understand it. And that makes sense, right? If you knew that someone was a deceiver and you tried talking with him, how could you really know what was true? That your deceitful heart, Jeremiah says, prevents you from even fully understanding the extent of its deception and wickedness. Have you ever seen this about your own heart before you came to Christ? No one, Jeremiah says, can unravel the twisted, sick heart of man. That is, except the one who's mentioned in the next verse, Jeremiah 17, 10, where we read, I, Yahweh, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So there is one who perfectly understands the human heart and can unravel all its deception. And that's God. What's sobering, however, is that God doesn't search the heart simply to understand. What will God do with that information? He will judge. 
he will judge every person's heart, including yours and including mine. So let's bring this all together. What does the Bible say is the origin and extent of sin when it comes to humanity? The Bible tells us sin originated with Adam and then passed to all men. Therefore, man is physically dying, completely sinful, and totally condemned by God. This is man's state. Make, make no mistake, the sins of Genesis 3 and 4 are not just a couple of bad examples. Rather, they are the first manifestations of a malady, a sickness, a disease common to all mankind. Really, what we're talking about here is the doctrine of original sin. Now, last week, I referred to the fall as the original sin, which is technically true. But when we refer to the doctrine of original sin, we're referring to something a little, little different, not the first event of sin. The doctrine of original sin refers to the inherited sinfulness that we all have as descendants of Adam, that sin condition. This biblical doctrine de declares that every person is born with a sin nature. What's a sin nature? That's an essential, deep-rooted condition that moves a man to rebel against God, even from birth. The Bible is clear. As a result of the fall, this is what we all have. Now, to this biblical assertion, someone might raise a few objections. And let me see if I can anticipate some of those. Someone might say, for instance, wait, if my condition is inherited from Adam and my condition forces me to sin, does that mean I'm not responsible for my own choices? After all, I can't choose anything different. I'm forced to sin. How would we respond to that? Well, to this, we must respond first by saying that the Bible clearly declares that God is just and he's rightfully able to hold all men accountable for their choices before him, even if those men can't understand why it is that God is able to hold them accountable. So that's one thing to realize, first of all. But it's also useful to clarify the nature of man's inability. This sinfulness, which we would characterize, which the Bible characterizes as total depravity, a radical corruption, a total sinfulness, it's useful to clarify what this inability that comes from this condition actually is. And we can do so by way of explanation from the great American theologian, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, one of the most brilliant minds who ever lived, American theologian from the 1700s. He comes up with a good, or he's come up with a good explanation for describing our inability. It goes something like this. Your being a sinner is not like being bound to a chair with a chain where even though you might want to get up, you can't because of the external constraints holding you down. Edwards calls what this state would be as natural inability. That's not what we have. We're not like we're chained to a chair. Rather, your being a sinner is well described as you simply being bound by what you love. Being a sinner is being bound by what you love. You see, every man is compelled to do whatever he wants to do. Given the chance, every person will do whatever he loves unless prevented by an external force. And this is obvious, right? 
You're motivated to act by what you love. You do what you want. But here's the problem. As a result of the fall, what does man want? Man has a new chief love. And it's not God. Man loves and worships himself. And thus, he loves and worships idols, and he loves all evil. Therefore, man is not externally compelled to commit sin. He is internally compelled because of his self-love and idolatry. Jonathan Edwards calls this moral inability. Do you see the difference? Moral inability is worthy of judgment. And even unbelievers recognize this. Even unbelievers recognize that those who love to do evil deserve punishment. Consider, a man who steals because he's desperately hungry receives some sympathy. You might say, well, you know, he, he didn't really have any other choice. But a man who steals simply because he loves stealing, he receives no sympathy because his desire is clearly wicked. You say, that kind of heart, that kind of desire, that kind of person deserves punishment. And that's what we are. As those born as lovers of evil, we all justly come under the judgment of God. Now, someone else might say, yes, I sin, but I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm not, I'm not like Cain or Judas. I even do good things sometimes. So, I think you're going too far with this doctrine of original sin. I'm pretty sure that I don't sin constantly. How do we respond to this? Again, there are many ways we could respond to this statement. First of all, if someone makes this objection, we have to respond. The Bible says otherwise. You may feel a certain way, but the Bible is more trustworthy than your feelings. And based on what the Bible says, more trustworthy than your corrupt and deceitful heart. But second of all, we must remember what sin is. Sin is any departure from the perfection and holiness of God. Sin is not simply murder. Sin is not simply adultery. It is any deviation from God's perfection. Unless you do good deeds exactly the way that God would do them, including with an appropriate trust, thankfulness and love to God, then your deeds and your life is imperfect, which means they not only are not righteous, but they are actually sinful because you have misrepresented and dishonored the goodness of God. God is all good. God is all perfection. He calls us to be like him, but we aren't. We're never as perfect as he is. It's partly for this reason that the scripture says in James 2.10, James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. You see, unless you keep the whole law, you are a lawbreaker. You are incapable of obeying any of God's commands. You say, oh, no, I'll just focus on one command and I'll actually obey that one. But don't you see that all the other commands are tied to it? If you don't do it in an exactly perfect way, then not only have you broken that law, but you've broken them all. Because the law is summed up with being like God. You know, that term sin 
there are a number of different terms to describe sin in the Bible, transgression, iniquity, wickedness, etc. But the term sin itself, one of its definitions is simply missing the mark. It's like a target. And unless you hit exactly the bullseye, you've missed the mark. And that's what we all do. You may come closer or seem to come closer than others, but you still miss the mark. You fall short of God's standard, which is perfection. That's what sin is. You see, in Adam, even the good we do, the supposed good we do, is imperfect. And therefore, God can't accept it. It's reprehensible to him. We have to confess the same thing that Isaiah does on behalf of sinful Israel in Isaiah 64.6. Isaiah says in Isaiah 64.6, For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a, wheat, like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. You see, if you are merely in Adam, but not in Christ, you do sin constantly in thought, word, and deed. Every moment, you fail to obey perfectly to imitate your righteous creator. Outwardly to men, they may not seem that bad, and you may not have committed particularly heinous sins, but God searches your heart. Isn't that what Jeremiah says? He meticulously examines every one of your works. And God's assessment of you, according to scripture, is the same as it was for Belshazzar in Daniel 5. You remember the unrighteous king of Babylon? God says to him, as he says to you, you have been weighed. You have been measured, and you've been found wanting. So none of us are truly good. Not even a little good. Now, someone else might say, wait a second, that's not fair. Why should I suffer the consequences of Adam's sin? I wasn't even there. I didn't choose him as my representative. How is it just that I should inherit his sin and the consequences of it? Well, this, too, is a question we could respond to from multiple angles, but I'm going to choose two. First of all, God is the one who appointed Adam to be the head of the human race. God not only instituted the system of headship, God's, or, but God also specifically created the person who would serve in the role of representative, of head. So everything God does is perfectly wise, just, and good. So God's installation of Adam as the head of humanity must then have been a perfectly wise, just, and good thing for God to do. To reject the idea of headship in this sense, or to reject Adam as your human head, would be to demand an account of God of his wisdom, which is always folly, and of course the height of arrogance. God, I don't think you should have done that. The Bible is clear that God always does what is right and is not obligated to explain himself to any of us. Moreover, God does not leave us in the dark as to why he has done what he has done, both in creation and in redemption. It's all about his glory. It's to enjoy and show forth his satisfying glory in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the choice of Adam as our failing head was perfect for God's glorious purposes in salvation and consequently for our ultimate good. So we can't contradict, we can't demand an explanation for God for why he chose this system of headship and why he chose Adam. 
it was perfectly wise for God to do so. But there is a second reason, a second angle for responding to this question. Speaking of salvation, God, second of all, is pleased to use a similar system to save us from our condemnation. And this we saw in our beginning passage, right? From this time. Just as Adam was our head that doomed us with his curse, so Christ becomes for believers a new head, a new leader and representative that bears the curse for us, and bears the curse for us, and instead gives us his righteousness. Adam passed on his sin to all those who were in him, but Jesus passed on his righteousness and salvation to all those who were in him. If we have a problem with Adam acting as our representative, then we must also have a problem with Christ acting as our representative. But who would want not to have Christ as their representative, especially in the face of such clear testimony in the Bible and in life of our sinfulness? Surely no one would want to refuse the benefits that come from being in Christ. But before we can take Christ as our representative, we must realize the horrifying curse we are under as a result of our first head, Adam. We all are sinners. We all are doomed to die. And we all are under God's condemnation, his eternal condemnation. Now, this truth, and I think you can already see this, has profound implications for our society. This means that many efforts from government officials, educators, and health professionals, they are doomed to fail because they assume something about man that is completely untrue. They assume that man is innately good or that man can be made good with enough man-made training. It's just not, not the case. Side note, this truth also shows us that many of the messages from our media entertainment are completely silly. How many times have movies, cartoons, and music encouraged us to follow our hearts, be true to ourselves, let our feelings guide us? Yes, I'm looking at you, Disney. Those messages might work if man were naturally good at heart, but in light of man's true state, these mottos are simply naive invitations to embrace our own folly and depravity. Now, there's one big problem, though, that we haven't addressed yet. And that is, well, if we are sinful, dying, condemned sinners, what do we do? How do we make the switch and receive Christ as our head and receive his benefits, make him our representative rather than merely staying in Adam? Well, Genesis 3 and 4 don't give us much hope because from Adam and Eve's interaction with God and Cain's interaction with God, we see that man is so sinful that when given the opportunity to confess his sin, to turn from sin, and to come to God for mercy, what will man do? He won't. He won't come to God, but he'll actually run from God, blame God, or treat God as an enemy. So our situation in Adam, then, is completely wretched and desperate. We are so sinful that we not only rebel against God continually, sinning continually, but we're so committed to our sin that we will never, on our own, choose to repent and be saved. None of us will ever come to God and say, you know what? I need your help. I need you to save me. No, we love our sin and ourselves too much that we will never do that. 
So what hope is there for us? What hope is there for you if you are in rebellion against God? Well, we hear about that hope in Ephesians chapter 2. Of course, many other places in the Bible. But if you ever want to talk about man's inability to repent and what God did about it, then there's probably no better passage to turn to than this one. Ephesians 2, 1 to 9. So emphatic about man and about God. Ephesians 2, 1 to 9. It says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, in this passage, verses 1 to 3 describe our state very depressingly. We look at, look at these descriptions. We are dead in trespasses and sins. The dead thing is not able to do anything. It's dead. We were trapped in the world's pattern, dominated by the prince of the power of the air. It's another name for Satan. We're enslaved by the lust of our flesh, ruled by our various desires, and in our nature, in our core being, children of wrath, inheritors of wrath. How many ways does God need to make clear that we were completely doomed and helpless? So, implication. In Adam, if you're strictly in Adam, how many people will choose to repent and seek God? Zero. No one will, because they're dead. That's what we all are. But some people are nonetheless saved. And how is that? Because of what we see starting in verse 4. First, with that very, very profound phrase, but God. The reason that some men can be saved is because God graciously intervenes, even at a heart level. God makes them alive. He shows them undeserved favor. He opens their eyes to see reality as it really is, to see the beauty of God in Christ, so that they might repent and believe, so that they might have faith. It's just as Jesus explained to Nicodemus in chapter 3. He says, Jesus says, to be saved, a man must be born again. That's become such a common term that we often don't think about the metaphor, but do think about it. How can one be born again? What child can ever accomplish his own conception? Could a child ever say to his parents, I want you to conceive me? No, <laughs> baby doesn't even exist. How can he cause himself to exist? But that's precisely the point. No child can do that. And so it is spiritually. God must cause spiritual birth by himself. God must provide the life-saving seed, as 1 John says. 
salvation is completely of God. God calls, God draws near, God regenerates, that is, gives new life. God sanctifies, God gives faith. He causes a new love for him to arise in our hearts, and he grants us repentance, as 2 Timothy 2.25 says. And why do it this way? So that God will get all the glory. Isn't that what Ephesians 2.9 says? This is so that no one will boast. God does it all. God shows himself to be totally worthy of the utmost worship as he displays his unfathomable patience, mercy, and power by accomplishing salvation on behalf of undeserving sinners. He does what we could never do, but we were so desperate to have him do for us. So behold then God's great kindness and power in sovereign grace, sovereign electing grace. This is to cause us to praise God. With man, salvation is impossible. But what did Jesus say to his disciples? With God, all things are possible. Matthew 19, 26. God has to do it all because original sin has made us radically depraved and unable to accomplish salvation on our own. But this brings about a second question. If salvation is all of God, which the Bible is clear that it is, and if salvation will never happen unless God accomplish it, accomplishes it, then what should we tell unbelievers? Is there any point in urging them to turn to Christ if they can't do anything and God must do it all? Well, of course, of course there's a point. Though God does do all the work, he uses us as the means. As we pray, as we declare the truths of the Bible with others, as we urge them to repent and believe, God will, through those means, not because he needs them, but because he's chosen to use them, will draw his elect ones to be saved. You know, it's, it's a common objection from those who don't want to believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation that believing in that will kill evangelism. It will destroy any motivation to evangelize because you say, oh, God has to do the work. But actually, it's the opposite. The sovereignty of God and salvation is the only reason why we can pursue evangelism. It's the only reason that we have hope in evangelism. Because if you understand the heart of man, as we've tried to understand today, you know that he's radically depraved and will never choose God. But if you know that God is sovereign in bringing those whom he has chosen unto salvation, then you know that your work is not in vain. You know that when you go out to declare God's word and declare the gospel, that some will respond because God is at work. If God were not at work, no one would respond. God's sovereignty and salvation is the foundation for evangelism, not a hindrance to it. You know, you see a really interesting intersection of God's sovereignty and salvation and heartfelt urging to turn and believe in Jesus' own ministry. In Matthew 11, Matthew 11, verses 25 to, to 30, we hear this from Jesus. This is Matthew 11, verses 25 to 30. Consider how he brings these two ideas out, these two truths, God's sovereignty and salvation, but a heartfelt urging to all men to turn and believe. Matthew 11:25. 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. 
Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So do you see that? Jesus immediately switches from thanking the Father for only saving those whom the Son chooses to reveal himself to, to tenderly inviting sinners, listeners, to come to him in faith. Jesus had no problem doing that. In fact, he does something similar in John chapter 6. We won't read there, we won't read what's there, but in that chapter, Jesus tells the Pharisees that no one will come to him unless God first draws him. And then he tells the crowd that he's the bread of life in which they must come and choose to believe. And so we do the same. We proclaim the eternal gospel, urging those who do not know Christ to repent, to turn from their sins and believe, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, knowing all the while that only those that God himself draws will actually be able to do so. They actually will do so. And so I can make the same appeal to you today that we all should do. To any of you listening today who have come to church yet still have not repented of your sins and received Christ as Savior and Lord, you are called by God to repent and believe. Turn away from your love of self, your love of the things of the world, these things that cannot save, your love of sin, and embrace the God that loves sinners enough to die for them in their place. And do not say to yourself, maybe I'm not elect. Maybe God didn't choose me. Don't worry about what you cannot know. What you do know is that God has called you to believe. You are responsible to come to him and obey God's call. So come, obey, repent. He will not refuse anyone who comes to him with a broken and contrite heart. In fact, maybe the stirring you feel in your heart or that pang in your conscience is in fact the Lord drawing you. So respond to that call. Embrace the Lord's call. No longer cling to the deceitfulness of sin and the comfortable lies of the world. These can give you no true gain, no lasting joy, no security from the wrath to come. Instead, come to the God who is. He invites you to come. He calls you to come. He commands you to come. Come to the God of life so that your sins might be washed away, so that you might be saved from the eternal anger of God against all sin and uncleanness. And don't hide in church attendance, religious works, rituals, even your own baptism. If you've never repented, if you've never turned away from your sin, if you've never given the throne of your heart to Jesus, you do not yet know him and you need to come. God calls you to come. Now to those of you who are in Christ, I hope that these truths cause you to praise God afresh. He has done what was impossible for any of us to do. <clears throat> Salvation wasn't possible for us. We were going to rot in our sin and burn forever in God's just judgment. 
we loved wickedness, but God had mercy on us. And why on us particular, we, we don't know. We cannot tell. But instead of giving us what we deserved, what we ourselves wanted, you know, sinners don't want God and they would rather perish in judgment because they love themselves and their sin. But God intervened. He gave us a new heart, new desires, and he's bringing us to eternal joy with him in Christ. Are you moved by those truths? In light of such grace from God, will you not lay aside your besetting sins? Will you still cling to the world and the other entanglements of life in the face of such a reality? Or will you give up all because of what God has done to make disciples, to see others know God and grow in his wonderful truth? That's what he's called you to do. Consider what he's done for you. To sum up today's main points, in contrast to the beliefs of many in our culture, all men are evil at heart, continually sinning, doomed to die, and under God's just condemnation. They will suffer the eternal anger of God. And sinfulness is so severe that he's actually unable to repent unless God supernaturally intervenes. Unless God saves him, man is completely lost. God has mercifully chosen to save, by grace, a remnant. And he uses his believers as ambassadors of his gospel. We declare, we've been called to declare the same message that Jesus and the apostles declared. And we trust God that God will use it and us to save whomever he has mercifully chosen. I have a couple other application questions, but before I get to those, what questions do you have on today's lesson? Yes, uh, in the back. Okay, I'm not sure if I completely heard the whole question, but I, I think I heard most of it. Your question is, if we all have this sin nature from Adam, this corrupted heart, what about or this corrupted nature, this sinful nature? What about for believers who God has caused to obey from the heart? God has given new life and God has regenerated. That's a great question. I think the answer to that question is, we have the old nature with us, the sin nature. And that's, that's why in Romans 7, Paul will talk about how even even though he desires to do good, even though he is committed to doing good, he still sins. So we still do have the old sin nature with us. We can still sin, and it is trying to master us again. But the new nature we've been given in Christ, the Holy Spirit, the, the life of God in us, is more powerful it is, it liberates us from that old nature. So though it is in us, 
it is defeated. God has given us, by his spirit, the ability to not sin. This is why the Bible can talk about our change of state in terms of slavery. We were slaves to sin, but now we are slaves of righteousness. And this doesn't mean we don't sin anymore. We still do have the capacity for sin because we are we still have that fallen nature from Adam. But we've gained a new nature in Christ, which overcomes that nature. And so that is why we will be characterized, if we truly know the Lord, by righteousness, by increasing sanctification. So to try and sum it up, sum up my answer briefly, we never lost the old sin nature. It's still there. And that's why we're still tempted to sin. And that's why we still do sin. But God has given us new life and a new nature in Christ, which is able to overcome that old nature. And that's why God calls us to sanctification. That's a good question. Other questions? And praise God for that truth, right? And uh, what a wonderful thing that we are no longer under the power of sin. You may have often heard theologians say, talk about what Christ has delivered us from in terms of the, the different aspects of sin. He's delivered us totally from the penalty of sin. That's a done deal. He is delivering us from the power of sin. It no longer rules in our lives. But one day he will deliver us from the presence of sin. We will no longer be around sin. We'll no longer be tempted to sin. We'll no longer have uh, a sin nature. We'll be glorified and we will enjoy the righteousness of God and his glory forever. Here are two other application questions I want to mention to you. They have to do with what we've talked about today. If someone doubts that all people are sinful from conception, what evidence could you offer in response? Well, hopefully from today's lesson, you, you know to go to the Bible. Someone says, I, I don't think I'm a bad person, or I know some good people. Go to Romans 5. Go to Psalm 51. Go to Jeremiah 17. And say, look, I understand from your perspective, it may feel that way, but God's trustworthy word says this. But it should actually be more obvious, even from looking at the world around us. I mean, you can just look at the newspaper, you consider society, or just visit a playground. Visit a nursery, someone's house with young children, and it will become clear pretty quickly that all people are sinners, even from birth, even from the youth. No one has to teach a child to lie, to steal, to throw a tantrum. They just know how to do it. It's part of the sin nature, and it's what we're all born with. So there's evidence all around that we are indeed suffering from original sin. One more question. If sin is passed to all of Adam's descendants, why then is it important to affirm that Adam and Eve were the original parents of all people? And hopefully you see the implication here as well. This biblical doctrine of original sin and the radical depravity that goes with it, it hinges on the fact that Adam and Eve were real people and that the fall was a real event that actually occurred. If Adam and Eve were not the parents of every person, then what the Bible says doesn't make sense. Why are we all sinners? Could there be a group of people who did descend from Adam? Why, why should they be? 
Why should they be given a sin nature? Why should they inherit the, the curse of Adam? This is because Adam and Eve were real people, and they are the first man and woman, and we are all the descendants from them. And therefore, we've inherited corruption. But just as Adam and Eve were real, Jesus really came and accomplished salvation so that those in him are really saved from Adam's curse and corruption and saved unto God. Well, that's all for this week. If you have other questions, please email me. Next week, we move on in the book of Genesis. We've talked about creation, talked about corruption. Next time, talk about catastrophe, that first monumental and sobering display of God's holiness and man's wickedness, the flood judgment. We'll have a couple of different lessons on the flood, so I look forward to talking about that. Very important section of scripture with you. Let's close in prayer. Well, Lord God, as so many things are in the Bible, this is both a sobering lesson, but also a joyous lesson. Sobering, Lord, and tragic because we see, wow, how desperate our state really is. Lord, we were so far away from you. We would never have come to you. We only loved ourselves. We were corrupt in every way. But God's so joyous because all of that you overcame. You intervened in our hearts. You sent your son, Jesus Christ, to provide redemption, to pay the penalty of our sins once and for all, and to reconcile us to you, the Father. He has accomplished that for all of those who are your chosen. We thank you for your mercy toward us, God. We never deserved it. And Lord, we know, and I hope we're coming to know even more, Lord, just how sinful we really are. Lord, we ought to beat our breasts the same way like the tax collector did in the gospel, Lord, who cried out, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. I am the sinner. I am a well-known, even the worst sinner. Lord, our hearts should all be able to testify that when we know just how, how evil our desires have been, how imperfect our works, how hypocritical our lives. Lord, I pray that no one at Calvary, no one listening today, will continue in a life of hypocrisy. God, that you would be so gracious as to work in their hearts, to repent, to come to you in salvation, and then to continue in sanctification. Lord, please do this for the sake of your own glory. You do all things well, and your glory is so wonderful and worthy. Glorify yourself in showing mercy to more people, even those at Calvary today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. I right, look forward to seeing you next week.